afternoon. I'm Franklin, and this is the Berkeley Rocks Radio Science Show. That's right. It's a weekly look at the world of science, technology, and their effects on their daily lives. I'm Charles Lee. Coming up on today's show, sinus warfare, killer caterpillars, and hot fusion. In addition, we'll be joined by Mr. David Park, who will talk about the grand contraption. Also, we'll find out what's in chocolate. So stay tuned for all this, plus the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week, coming right up here on the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Welcome back to Berkeley Rocks. I'm Frank Ling. And I guess that makes me Charles Lee. How are you doing, Frank? Pretty good. So have you decided what to name your firstborn? Grox or Coca-Cola? I was thinking Methuselah. So is that what you're going to be ingesting when you're creating your baby? <laughs> well, I'm just hoping it'll live forever, that's all. I wonder if anyone's actually listening to us while they're partaking in uh, some recreational events. It's the only way I think anyone could actually enjoy the show or even tolerate it, really. <laughs> it could make it so much better, you know. Okay, so my first story has nothing to do with this, of course. <laughs> it'll, be, it'll be interesting to see how uh, what kind of activities people are doing while they're listening to the show. Uh, uh, well, there's only two that I can think of that might be fun. <laughs> <laughs> All right. And the other one is sex. <laughs> of course. So when you were growing up, what was your favorite animal song? Three Blind Mice. How about the uh, Ugly Bug Ball? I think I've ever heard that one. I just heard it recently, and my cousin was playing it to her kids. Is this like the new children's song about animals? I guess so. But it turns out that bugs are not only ugly, they can kill. I've known that for quite some time. <laughs> I was terrified after seeing Charlotte's Web. So it turns out uh, scientists have discovered another species of caterpillar in Hawaii, which are predators. They only eat other animals. Most caterpillars, which, you know, eat leaves and are vegetarian. Right. Uh, it turns out this very rare species can spin webs to capture snails and basically devour them. They use their webs like uh, a spider would, basically. Yeah, very much like a spider's web. Huh, but don't caterpillars, they're mostly uh, herbivores, right? Of 150,000 species of moths and butterflies, only 200 species of them are actually uh, carnivores. And they found one of them. But it also shows evolutionary diversion in Hawaii. This is not the only animal that's sort of unusual in its own group of species. Other animals, including the uh, damselfly and the ambush caterpillars, are also have unusual ways of surviving. So it sort of shows how the isolated conditions of Hawaii will have probably evolved these very unusual creatures. You find uh, that anytime you have isolated populations, right. like the marsupials in Australia. They can talk. <laughs> <laughs> and the Republicans in D.C. <laughs> So this is very interesting work, and it was published in a recent issue of Science by Daniel Rubinoff. Okay, Frank, so uh, did you know there's a war going on? It's going on in my body, right? My antibodies are attacking those microbes are invading me today. In fact, they're invading your nose. Yes. Well, that sucks, because uh, <laughs> my nose has been perpetually clogged. Well, it may actually be due to uh, a number of bacteria, one of them of which is called the Haemophilus influenzae. So uh, basically I have a perpetual flu then. It actually rivals the Streptococcus bacteria, competes for a specific niche in actually mostly the noses of children. Hmm. Researchers saw that this Haemophilus bacteria actually outcompeted the Streptococcus bacteria, even though in the lab petri dishes the Streptococcus bacteria always 
wins. Really? Yes. So it turns out that this bacteria actually has a very clever mechanism, which was found by Jeffrey Weiser and colleagues at the University of Pennsylvania School of Medicine. And what they showed was essentially the hemophilus bacteria actually somehow recruits the uh, immune system of your body uh-huh. to actually attack streptococcus bacteria. Definitely fair. It's sneaky warfare. <laughs> it's guerrilla warfare in a way. <laughs> so all this time I thought it was my cheetah was blocked or something. If chi were involved, hemophilia certainly has stronger chi. But all this time it was just these rival bacteria trying to take advantage of my immune system. <laughs> And this is actually a very fascinating work. It was published in a recent edition of the Public Library of Science Journal, PLOS Biology. Ooh, awesome. It's free. So have you thought about going nuclear? Nuclear or nuclear? It depends on uh, which Bush is in, pres- <laughs> in right. presidency, right? <laughs> the one hopefully that doesn't like broccoli. I think he was a little better. <laughs> So it turns out scientists at LBL, Lawrence Berkeley National Labs, have actually devised a cost-effective way of creating a fusion. Really? Okay. Conventionally, uh, fusion is known as from the process of combining two different nuclei to give off energy. Mm-hmm. Typically, this is done by trying to combine deuterium with the tritium core, mm. the nucleus. One of the challenges to actually get them combined, because there's going to be high repulsion that they have to overcome right. as they approach each other, basically positive charges repulsing each other. Right. A team at the Heavy Ion Fusion Group have devised some experiments where they show that this could be done probably at a under more facile conditions. And what they did was they could neutralize some of the space charge effects of these heavy ions by sending them through a uh, preformed plasma uh, as they're compressing the ions together. And by doing so, they neutralize some of the uh, the positive positive repulsion. Okay, so basically somehow the plasma, I guess, neutralizes that charge. Uh, and... Somehow. Oh. Yeah. So that means, you know, we're one step closer to actually having a... Uh, fusion power source. This is like one of the holy grails in energy development. They've been talking about this for 50 years that mm. it's going to be here in 25 and we're still uh, 25 years away right. as of now. Well, I, I, I'm, I'm waiting still for the, the cold fusion. We've been waiting for that to happen in the uh, Coke bottle for years. <laughs> yeah, just pop open the Coke. <laughs> That's right. And get ready to power city. <laughs> or a time machine. <laughs> and uh, this was reported in Science at Berkeley Lab. All right, and finally, Frank, what's living underneath your floorboard? I haven't cleaned my room in a long time, (laughs) actually all my life. I suspect tons of mites, probably mutated bacteria and other uh, nasties. Right, I'm sure there's a woolly mammoth stuck underneath there or something. Yeah. (laughs) Frozen caveman. Uh, Well, it turns out that uh, deep underneath the seafloor, there's also teeming life. Wow, they can take the pressure down there, huh? Well, it was amazing because actually researchers didn't think for quite some time that there would actually be life underneath these deep seabeds. Hmm, what kind of life? Is it like talking dolphins or? (laughs) (laughs) Well, we're talking about bacterial life, obviously. Yeah, so I think I've heard somewhere like people can't, swim more than like 100 feet down the ocean or something before the pressure starts to right, crush on them. Right, Well, but of course, as you get to smaller and smaller sizes, you know. Yeah, it becomes less relevant. Right. Uh, the interesting thing, of course, though, is that uh, where do these uh, organisms get their energy since they're isolated from the sun? Mm-hmm. And so researchers thought, well, you know, nothing could really uh, be metabolizing anything down there. Right. But there's all sorts of alternative methods for extracting energy, it turns right. out. And so a group of researchers led by John Parks, who's a microbiologist at the Cardiff University in the United Kingdom, he uh, basically visited two oil drilling sites in the Pacific and obtained a bunch of samples and found that even in very deep core samples, he could find the microorganisms that were metabolizing, mm-hmm. albeit at a very slow rate. Mm-hmm and thinking that they could reproduce only maybe once every 100,000 years or so. Alive, yes, but slow and kicking. (laughs) (laughs) 
So it just shows basically that in the oldest sediments, they have microbes that are at least been there since for 11 million years or so. Wow. And they basically uh, metabolize the debris that falls from the top of the ocean. I wonder what's living at the core of the Earth, though. <laughs> ah, well, well, that would be the giant core monster. <laughs> yes, which is spinning the core. <laughs> right, for, uh, that's right. To keep our magnetic field going. So if you want to read about this, not the core monster, but about the uh, undersea bacteria, it was published in a recent edition of Nature. And that's all for a look at current developments in the world of science and technology. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show here on KALX 90.7 FM. Well, coming up next, Professor David Park will join us to talk about the Grand Contraption. So stay tuned. to the Berkeley Grok Science Show here on KALX 90.7 FM. Well, our modern view of the world owes its existence in part to the rapid progress of physics in the past hundred years. The cosmology we embrace includes notions like a Big Bang and possibly even multiple dimensions. But the evolution of human inquiry into the universe is perhaps older than recorded history and may speak even more about us as a species. Well, joining us today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show to discuss some of these ideas about the universe is Professor David Park. Professor Park is the Weber Atwell Class of 1921 Professor of Physics at Williams College. He is the author of seven books, including The Fire Within the Eye and The How and the Why. His new book, The Grand Contraption, The World is Myth, Number, and Chance, explores the history of human ideas about the cosmos. Professor Park, thank you very much for joining us today on Berkeley Grok's. Well, I, I, it's well, it's fun. Well, we're certainly very happy to have you on the program, and uh, you've certainly written a very fascinating and uh, wide-ranging book. Uh, you cover everything from Greek myths to Copernicus to uh, modern physics. Uh, but I'm curious, maybe as a bit of an overview, if you can uh, give a brief description of how maybe all of the ideas that you cover in your book relate to the idea of a grand contraption. I'm going to step back a little bit and, and, and talk about, just for a moment, about how the book came to exist. The, the previous book was the one you mentioned called The Fire Within the Eye. It's a history of light. And then you say, well, of course, light doesn't have any history. It's just there. So what I really mean is the history of the meaning people have given to light. Uh, for example, at the beginning of the Bible, let there be light, and so on and so on and so on. And... Uh, I got that out of the way and started thinking about another book in the same general pattern. And I thought of how people thought about the world. But this is a gigantic subject. Light is a little subject, and and the world is is a huge subject. And the book tended to grow to obscene proportions. I had to throw a lot of it away. So I decided 
just to sample people's opinions about the world, not to try and give a complete history of what people thought about the world. That's ridiculous, and besides, it's, it's already been done. But to sample opinions, to let people talk in their own words as much as possible, there's a lot of quotations in the book. And I think they kind of slow it down. But how else are you going to find out anything about the individual styles of the people who are involved? And a lot of them are terribly interesting people. So it's a book about conjectures, and I try to take all these conjectures very seriously. I, 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 I think it's just awful when people uh, laugh at Aristotle or laugh at Plato because they didn't get everything the way we've got it today. That's no way to do history. You've got to put yourself in that place at that time and think what tremendous leaps of imagination people were able to make. So it's a book that splatters all over the place, but I wanted to keep it under 300 pages, and I think I did. Okay, talk about it. <laughs> you know, for a tell 300 pages, you certainly cover a wide range of uh, topics, um, but I'm curious if we can maybe start talking about some of the ideas there, uh, maybe by starting at the beginning and talking about the early Greek myths. Well, there, there wasn't anything standard about Greek philosophy. Uh except that it exists, because it covers 500 years, or at least, and all the whole east end of the Mediterranean, going south as far as Alexandria, and there's an enormous variety of thinking that went on. Uh, you've got to consider individual people. What did Plato, for example, think the whole thing was about? Uh -huh. Well, for him, the origin of the world was so complicated that he had to express it in terms of a story, which is about the length of a, of a short novel. and. He starts out with absolute total chaos, which is, of course, just the way the Bible starts out and various other people's creation myths start out, and he writes it as a story. A God who is n not at all like the, the biblical God, but, but somebody more like a very skilled craftsman gets to work on this uncontrolled, uncontrollable chaos, and he brings order into it, gives it a soul, gets it starting to work, calms the, the, the rough waves, and gradually constructs a principal apparatus of planets and stars. And all of this is pervaded by spirits, and he gives the spirits an interesting job. He says, hey, get together and design people and animals. Hmm. Quite different from Bible, because Bible has the creation of people done in a separate room from the creation of the animals. But here the craftsman's friends were invited to create the whole thing. Well, as I say, it's a very long story, and all sorts of interesting questions come up. For example, questions of health. How are you going to design healthy people? Uh, how does the eye work? And suddenly you find yourself in the middle of a discussion of how it's possible to see anything. Hmm. I think we tend to think of the, uh, the problems of vision as sort of simple, but if you look at a tree and then ask yourself, well, how does the image of that tree get through the little hole in the front of your eye? You've got an enormous problem of explanation, problem which wasn't solved until 1,500 years after Plato, as a matter of fact. He gives a very ingenious solution to it. Do you want me to talk about that, or, or, or is that too far away from what we're, what we're driving? Uh, well, you know, I, I think the interesting thing about a lot of the ideas that you mention is that a lot like our modern cosmology, they, they do seem to be driven by uh, observations about the world and then an attempt to make a model of the world from those observations. Well, Plato has a model, and Aristotle has a model. He has, the Bible has a model. The Bible's model is a flat earth, and very possibly one of several 
flat discs. They're like a stack of phonograph records with, with space between them. A great many people have had right. myths, stories about the origin of the world and the form of the world. I, I, I'm curious, uh, when do you think uh, it evolved from humans just uh, creating myths about the world to then trying to take measurements and fit their stories to their measurements? The first thing that people needed to measure was time in the world. And you'll find that the ancient Babylonians, by maybe three or, three, three or four centuries B.C., already knew how long a month is to within four seconds. Then you say, well, that's a tremendous achievement when you consider it's all naked eye astronomy and they didn't have a clock. Mm. So how could you possibly do that? Well, I worked out in the, in, while well, I was writing the book a way in which they, could poss- they might have done it, something would work. Unfortunately, all their scratch paper got thrown, or scratch cuneiform, got thrown away with the trash, and so we don't know how they actually did it. It was terribly important for this reason. Babylonians' gods were very particular about what happened on what day of the year. On one day, there would be some particular thing you should eat, and on another day, there would be general prohibition, for example, that nobody should go to a doctor, and no doctor should even touch a patient. And these days were defined by the moon and the month, of course, and the month began when you could first see the new moon, and that's all very well in clear weather, but the weather isn't always clear. And so what happens if you can't see whether the moon is visible or not? You've got to keep the gods happy, so you you have to know when the month begins, when the moon would be visible, if it were visible, except for the clouds, and all of this involves an enormous amount of observation of weather. It depends, for example, on what time the sun goes down, when the earth begins to get dark so that you can see the moon, the the new moon at all. Well, how does the earth get dark? Well, it's because the sun goes down. Okay, does it go down straight or does it go down slantwise? Because if it goes down slantwise, the night falls more slowly than if the sun goes straight down. Well, that depends on the season of the year. And so the Babylonians worked out this entire system. And you say, well, what's the point of it? Well, for them, it was a matter of desperate necessity. You didn't want to get the gods angry at you. And gods did not tolerate errors. That is the kind of reasoning that led to the first to me, astonishingly accurate measurements. The Chinese in the Han Dynasty, which is hundreds of years B.C., had the length of the moon to a few minutes and the length of the year to about a day. I don't know what their worry was, but I suspect it may have been pretty much the same kind of thing that we know about the Babylonians. Hmm. I'm, I'm curious, actually. So what do you think is driving our need to create these stories about the world? even to the present day, where we now have very highly evolved uh, stories, based on science, of course, about the cosmology of the world. It's rather scary when you think that the entire picture of modern cosmology is based on the physics of elementary particles. So the cosmological theory, and this is a development pretty much the last 20 years, tremendous amount of thinking has gone in, but what is the universe anyway? Mm -hmm. What's it made of? Mm -hmm. Well... Twenty years ago, if you'd asked anybody, any astronomer, they would have said, well, it's made mostly of neutrons and protons, like the nucleus of ordinary atoms, and a few very lightweight particles thrown in, and that's the thing. Now it appears that not more than four or five percent of all the matter of the universe is made of neutrons and protons. Well, what's the rest of it? Mm -hmm. We don't know. Mm -hmm. And so how are you going to do physics about stuff when you don't even know what it is? Of course, astronomy is is, is desperately trying to find out with, with, with 
very intelligent experiment get some sort of handle on the remaining kinds of matter in the universe. There seems to be two different kinds. One pushes and the other pulls. One tends to make the universe expand faster, and the other tends to make it expand more slowly. And the faster one, several million years ago, started to win this race, and the, the universe is now expanding faster and faster. But how this works, what kind of matter, what kind of force is involved, is something that, frankly, in the literature, you want to get wild guesses, very intelligent guesses, and they're all worked out beautifully. But there's no experimental evidence. Uh, so it looks like our inquiry into the cosmology of the universe will continue for some time yet. Watch your newspaper. You know, Richard Feynman, uh, Richard Feynman used to speak of the ever-advancing front of ignorance. And this is a perfect example of it. Of course, the history of, of astronomy is very largely a history of instrumentation. And every time a new form, let's say people wanted to go beyond optical telescopes, so they put up radio telescopes, and suddenly a completely new selection of questions and answers, questions that nobody had ever thought of in the age of optical telescopes, didn't used to be able to see, see into the center of the galaxy. Now we can see into the center of the galaxy with radio telescopes, and they, they show a lot. Instrumentation is probably more important in astronomy than any other science because you can't get near anything in astronomy. Mm -hmm. It's got, all got to be done with instruments. Mm -hmm. So what would you say are the big unanswered questions left in cosmology? What is all this stuff in the universe? Until we know at least something about that, we can't even ask any intelligent question. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, of course, in that 4 or 5%, which is made of matter that we understand, that's all the visible stuff the stars, the galaxies, and all that, that part of it is, I suspect, really quite well understood. Dark matter, which is just a, the way of saying it's invisible, dark matter doesn't prevent you from seeing anything the way a dark cloud does, but it prevents you from understanding how galaxies move unless you take the dark matter into account, because the weight of dark matter in the galaxy is much greater than the weight of all the stars. Mm -hmm. So it produces a gravitational field which has to be taken into account. Well, it's possible to find out, to, to sort of map the dark matter in the galaxy. I, am, I must say that I'm talking not as an astronomer. I have no formal training in astronomy at all. I've read a good deal, so I hope that uh, I haven't said anything that isn't, uh, isn't believed to be so. Hmm. Uh, okay, well, you know, it looks like we are running slightly out of time, but uh, I guess just to try and end on maybe a bit of a philosophical note, in your book you write, uh, statements of fact end and fall silent, but myth echoes in the memory of generations. So what do you think this says about the ideas and myths that we try and embrace in our views of the universe? Well, <clears throat> on the last page of my book, I mentioned that one day with, I walked with a very wise man in Budapest. And as we were crossing the Danube on an old bridge, we were talking about this question. And he said, we must love the universe, but we must always remember that the universe does not love us. <laughs> the this book is really about loving the universe. All of these people, for one reason or another, thought hard and creatively and affectionately about whatever uh, problem having to do with the world they were dealing with. Also, I think on the last page of the book, is the reason I wrote it, which is that we can have all the Kyoto agreement and that kind of, of strained and contentious political maneuvering in trying to preserve the world 
it will always be strange and contentious unless we relax and let ourselves love the world. And of course we should pass the, the Kyoto Agreement and, and all that. Of course we should do that. That's not even worth discussing. But it will remain a matter of negotiation and pulling and hauling until and unless people say, look, we have to love the world because it's the only world there is. And we've all got to get together and try to see what it needs and take action accordingly. And it isn't a question of negotiating. It's a question of making whatever sacrifices are necessary. Well, I think that's a very agreeable sentiment for most people, uh, but we are slightly out of time. And uh, I do want to thank you, Professor Park, for joining us today on the Berkeley Grok Science Show and talking all about your book, The Grand Contraption. Well, it was fun. Well, thanks a lot for asking. And you were just listening to Professor David Park discussing the cosmological views of the universe as portrayed in his book, The Grand Contraption. You're listening to the Berkeley Grok Science Show here on KALX 90.7 FM. Well, we'll be right back with the Grokatron 5000 and the world-famous Question of the Week. So stay tuned. All right, welcome back to the Berkeley Grok Science Show. Well, we're back from the break, and our guest, Professor David Park, has graciously decided to stick around and play our game, the Grokatron 5000. The Grokatron 5000, of course, is our supercomputer, which was formerly known as Deep Blue. And today, the Grokatron 5000 has chosen the topic, What is their worldview? So for the following five people, the Grokatron 5000 would like to know, what is their worldview? Professor Park, are you ready to play our game, the Grokatron 5000? Okay. Okay, very good. So person number one, Donald Trump. Oh, Donald Trump. Good Lord. What's his... <laughs> That's a wonderful question. You want me to tell you what I think is view of the world is? What? <laughs> well, it, it, it's 500 stories high, and so we've only explored a little bit of it. We're only up at about the, the 110th story, and there's this vast area, this huge mass hovering over our heads, much bigger than anything we've ever seen. And Donald Trump's mission in life is to get into elevators and see how high they'll go to equip himself, of course, with high-altitude stuff. And everybody who goes up above a certain level got to take oxygen. <laughs> Ultimately, of course, oxygen will be supplied. That's not probably the way it is now because nobody lives up there. <laughs> okay, here's the second person we have, George Lucas. I saw the first Star Wars movie. I didn't see the, the others. Obviously, conflict okay. and danger, conflict, activity, noise, a lot of music. Not my world. <laughs> okay, how about number three, Albert Einstein? The world of Einstein is something to be invented. Hmm. Its principles are mathematical, but the mathematics has to be invented. I don't mean uh, new ways of adding and subtracting and that kind of thing. But it may be that the mathematics that describes it is not mathematics that's been studied for any other purpose. But he, Einstein says that the world is the free invention of the scientist. And then you say, well, yeah, sure, but what about all the experiments? Einstein's point is that the experiments tell whether it's right or wrong, but the experiments do not lead to the free invention. That is something that comes popping up out of the mind. And then the experiments maybe have suggested something but it is freely invented. Huh. Uh, how about number four, Gandhi? It is a world that is very largely controlled by forces 
outside our ability to understand. The world has been set up as a vast machinery with karma governed by the laws of karma, which we only partly understand, and with everybody with a certain duty towards the, the world, the, the entire world structure, uh, it manifests itself in, for example, the caste system, in the way in which society, human society is organized and run, and I don't think that the physical, astronomical universe exists for Gandhi except insofar as the heavenly arrangements of the stars give some hint as to how we should act and what we should do and what we should not do. Oh, okay. And finally, the President of the United States, George Bush. I don't want to be impolite. <laughs> I, I'm sure I'm talking to friends. I would say that George Bush has given very little thought to the nature of the universe, how large it is. I doubt whether the idea of loving the universe, as I hope some of my listeners do, I don't think that the idea that one should love the universe would be likely to find a home in George <laughs> Bush's head. Well, I think there would be a lot of people that would agree with that. <laughs> yeah, yeah I'm, talking, I'm talking from Massachusetts, which is very blue. <laughs> <laughs> okay, well, uh, Professor Park, I do want to thank you very much for joining us today, playing our game, The Grokatron 5000, and, of course, discussing your book, The Grand Contraption. All right, it's been fun, and thanks for calling. And now for us with the answer to last week's question of the week, what are the active ingredients in chocolate? Well, chocolate contains a lot of stimulants, the main one being theobromine, but don't feed it to the dogs. It's actually kind of poisonous. In humans, it's a mild stimulant, but for dogs, it'll make their heart run so fast, it just puts them to sleep forever. That's what's in chocolate. Yes, and now it's Sean Connery going to the center of the earth. It's deep, it's dark, and it's entrapping. But what are you going to do in the center of the earth? How fast can you go? It's going to go a lot faster than you might think compared to the surface of the earth. Well, if you know the answer or think you know the answer, email us groks at hotmail.com. You're not going to win anything, but the core will be yours! And that's all for this week's edition of Berkeley Grox. Make sure you tune in next week for more from the world of science and technology. If you'd like to contact us for Berkeley Grox, you can email us at grox at hotmail.com. For Berkeley Grox, I'm Frank Ling. And I'm Charles Lee. Make sure you also see us on the web at www.grox.net. Have a great afternoon and stay tuned for more music. <laughs> <laughs>